back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. As always, I'm Nina. I'm Kyle, and today we're talking about the psychology of climate apathy, which is, you know, just a fancy term that we use when we say, what? People don't care about climate change? But more broadly, we're going to talk about the effect that the reality of climate change has on our mental health. The first thing we want to talk about then is just how frustrating it is to talk about the climate crisis in the first place. Because the thing about climate change is that you try to look at it from one angle, then you realize so many more things are affected. And those things end up affecting other things, then end up affecting people, industries, the economy, etc., etc. And it becomes very overwhelming. It's like accidentally tipping over a domino and then you know you need to stop it, but it just continues and you're kind of just stuck watching it and watching everything collapse. Yeah, and you just can't help. Um, you, you can't help but marvel at it, at the, the connections. But at the same time, it's kind of terrifying if those dominoes are buildings, for example. <laughs> like, that, that's, that's what it feels like. It's like a domino effect, but the dominoes are buildings. Or the dominoes are countries. And a lot of people are dying. And a lot of people are dying. Uh, so here's an example of that. So you know that you want to reduce carbon emissions. A lot mm-hmm. of it comes from fossil fuels, right? So what do we do? The scientific community says, oh, we should try looking for renewable sources of energy. And one of those ways is if we, instead of using our crops for food, how about let's turn some of it into fuel? So like corn or soybean, let's turn it into something called biofuel. Wouldn't that be great? Yes, it would be great. And so we got biofuel. But the problem with that is, because of climate change, you you experience a lot of drought. So there isn't a lot of food to go around. So there's a food shortage. So if you use even more of your um crops for fuel, that just intensifies a food shortage. Uh, So we were like, all right, how about we use some more of that land to grow more crops for biofuels? Yeah, easy. Check. The problem is the only land we haven't utilized yet is forest land. Mm. So that's how biofuels end up contributing to deforestation. And by the way, a lot of that forest is occupied by indigenous peoples. So you have to shoo them out as well. And by the way, also, also, the international community is now condemning you for it. And now several EU leaders are threatening to end trade deals with you. And also, 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 the Amazon forest is now a carbon source and not a carbon sink. Partly because of this also. And that's not hypothetical. That's literally what happened in Brazil. A lot of the deforestation of the Amazon forest happened to make room for soybean production, which was used in part for the making of biofuel. So that renewable energy that we wanted, just for Brazil, it kind of like backfired somewhat. And the thing about that is, Climate change has created all sorts of problems so such that even if you try to fix it in one way, you are indirectly hurting another part of society because of it. So for Brazil, at least, climate change and energy shortages, food shortages, indigenous people's rights, international relations, they're not different debate themes. It's all just one big problem blob that yeah. we have to solve at the same time, it seems. Yeah, and if you're overwhelmed, that's fine. It's understandable. We're also overwhelmed, which is why a few of our episodes recently have been talking about the climate crisis quite a lot. If you're tired of it, you shouldn't be. 
because it's a real pressing issue and things just get worse every day and there's more to learn about it every day. But you you should know that whatever happens or whatever you might be feeling, chances are you're still in a more privileged position than those who are vulnerable. And we therefore have this sort of obligation to know what we can do and help as much as we can to not just save ourselves, but save those who are in positions that are unfavorable in comparison to us. So for example, Greta Thunberg has said that she felt depressed because of the realization that global warming exists and would ruin lives, but it hasn't stopped her. And I guess the feeling of depression is a new phenomenon called solastalgia. And as a concept, it was developed by an environmental philosopher, Albrecht, to sort of understand the psychological trauma experienced because of climate change and because of the environmental changes happening all around us. Yeah, so I read Albrecht's original paper from 2007, and it was a quite quite a fascinating piece of research because it looked at um, a place in Australia, in New South Wales in Australia, which had accelerated the expansion of their open-cut coal mining and power industries. So it's it's a place that has a lot of, you know, environmental disruptions and a lot of environmental changes. And within those communities, they conducted interviews with a lot of people and they had what is called ethnographic fieldwork, which is, a, it's a fancy academe term, which basically means like there's a person named not named, a person called uh, an ethnographer who lives in the area with the residents to collect data um, on perceived threats to well-being, actual lived experiences of environmental change. But for other cases, like other studies, an ethnographic fieldwork is also important. So like if you're studying cultural attitudes, you usually have ethnographic fieldwork. So they're looking at responses to environmental change as a part of cultural attitudes and what they found was that for many people, the changes in their environments had disrupted their place, their sense of place, basically, and their sense of identity. So as a result, their mental and physical healths were challenged because of the changes. And more than that, they also felt powerless to influence the outcome of these changes. For some people, the changes represented a sort of generational battle, saying that the reason why their ancestors left England to go to Australia in the first place was because of a doctor's recommendation because they were suffering from a lot of problems regarding their respiratory system due to the Industrial Revolution and all the smog that it brought forward, the smoke, the working conditions, etc. So they sort of lament the fact that they have to ask themselves the same question their ancestors did, which is, where where do they go now? Yeah, and it's, it's quite tragic. And the paper had, because it, again, was from interviews partly, they were looking at people who actually experienced like the, the brunt of these um, effects. So they were saying that, you know, some of them lost weight. Some of them would have to wake up in the middle of the night with their, you know, stomachs clenched. They, they said it was like clenched like a fist. And they're thinking like, what are they going to do? They're losing money um, because they're farmers. Uh because they're farmers, a lot of them are losing money because of drought. The government doesn't want to listen to them. The corporations don't want to listen to them. What do they do? Like, do they just go broke? They can't sell anything to anyone because no one wants to buy it, especially their property, uh, because it's not right next to the mine. So they, they didn't know what to do at all. And that kind of reminds me of, 
like the the Ben Shapiro meme where Ben Shapiro was like, "All right, let's say let let's <laughs> I try. No, don't try to <laughs> let let's say that global warming exists and a lot of people's homes will be submerged into wa- underwater." And Ben Shapiro was like, "Don't you just think that people will just sell their houses and move?" And then each bomber guy was saying, "Yeah, just one problem: sell their houses to who, Ben?" Fucking Aquaman! <laughs> so it's basically the same thing here. Like, this this what they're experiencing. They know that they'd rather leave. It's just that because their environment is so bad, mm. they can't sell it. They can't afford to leave. So they're, they, they have no choice but to stay there. So, like, if we're talking about other poor people, like, uh, recently we talked about uh, women in the the slums in India, what they had to do was they they painted their roofs uh, with a reflective white paint so that a lot of the sunlight gets reflected back into the atmosphere uh, instead of them actually feeling the brunt of the heat waves and stuff like that. Um, th- a problem with that is they can't move. They they're too poor to move mm. to a, a, an. Like a place where they don't have to feel that level of heat, right? Yeah. But- so innovation isn't really commendable if it's done out of desperation, like in the case of so many people that had to create new inventions all for the sake of, you know, cutting costs and surviving at the same time. I would say it is commendable, but it's still kind of sad. Like, uh, <laughs> if you see like a big tragedy, for like a really really big tragedy a lot of people are dying and then you manage to save a lot of them i think the fact that you save people is commendable but it doesn't mean that the situation is something like whoa that's so cool right and i think that's what's happening here so like these kinds of people they do have their own ways of coping but it doesn't change the fact that for them actually living through it there is a huge mental and physical toll but there's also qualitative work. Um, so again, I, it was just interviews, right? So it's qualitative. So economists go like, oh, that's just qualitative. <laughs> um, but it was eventually validated by the creation of, of a quantitative measure called the Environmental Distress Scale, or the EDS, that was developed by Nick Higginbotham. And the EDS is a survey of like 81 questions that's used to measure environmental distress components like the frequency of hazard events like dust, noise, vehicle movement, pollution. So you can answer on a scale of 1 to 5, 1 being like never and 5 being daily, um, whether you observe heritage destruction, soil erosion, your perception of threat to yourself or your family, when you think about certain environmental hazards, whether you agree with statements like I am worried about risks to human health due to environmental pollution. And a lot of those questions were um, weighted. You know, they, they were combined and they yielded a total distress score. So th- fun fact, that's how a lot of economists do their work. If they're trying to measure something that has never been measured before or they're trying to measure feelings, they do use like these kinds of surveys. They take qualitative or subjective measures like feelings and put them on a numerical scale and then they create an indicator showing the overall level of that feeling. Um, so in 2006, Nick Higginbotham used the EDS to compare two rural communities. One rural community 
had environmental disturbance, like a lot of environmental disturbance, and another and the other rural community had low environmental disturbance. So you you had something to compare it to. And as predicted by Albrecht, the data ended up showing that the group that had more environmental disturbance had higher environmental distress scores as well. Yeah, so a lot of this actually goes unnoticed for many of us in this generation in particular because I guess we kind of grew up with climate change as a background issue for all other issues. Like, we've known since we were young that the environment is dying. Kyle, when he was younger, ended up giving all his teachers and classmates a copy of The Inconvenient Truth. And yeah, I, I, received, I, like... I received a copy from his parents recently as well. You know, so, I mean, it, it just proves that one, Kyle was a strange kid who cared a lot about the environment from a young age. But two, that, you know, this is not new. This has been a background issue for many of us for a long time. Yeah, I, I just want to say it was a background issue for me because I remember... It was Christmas time. Mm. I was uh, like a seven or eight year old and I was just giving all my teachers this like really bad like copy of a documentary basically. And then the following year, I approached the vice principal and then I was like, Miss, did did you get the gift that I sent you? Of course, Kyle, I did. Did you watch it? Of course, Kyle, I did. It was very interesting. Then why aren't we talking about it in class? Yeah, so so Kyle was an intense kid. Okay, so maybe you're not like Kyle, right? And most people just sort of know that climate change is happening. And while it does bother us, we don't let it take the limelight. Because other things might be our priority, right? We might be more concerned about corruption or personal issues or the stress of online class for like this generation. However, this does not change the fact that you you do feel distress in a way. And perhaps, you know, our generation has just sort of adapted, given that we're bombarded with this information daily. We've actually also experienced anticipatory nostalgia because of the pandemic, for instance. In early 2020, a bunch of people were saying, oh, the world is healing. And noting that they could see the stars more clearly because big corporate buildings were vacated, stuff like that. Some even said the canals were starting to clear and there were wildlife spotted again. Do you remember the tweet that was Yung Manila Bay. Not Manila Bay. (laughs) I think it was abroad. Like Venice, the canals cleared up for like a week. And the fish came back. The fish came back. And I I guess a lot of us felt sad about that too. Despite the fact that it's good news because, you know, we want the world to heal. But we just don't like the fact that it highlighted how big our impact is on an environment as people. And then everything became better when we just stayed at home and did nothing. And I guess we're fearful of the fact that we'll lose it all again when the pandemic is over. Or when a country tries to reopen prematurely and go back to quote-unquote normal. Yeah, so so nostalgia as a word is quite interesting. Because it like they did take some cues from nostalgia. Nostalgia is like you're yearning for a past that isn't there anymore. I mean, so it, it's based on a reality that you're experiencing. So, and so nostalgia is sort of like yearning for a sort of environment where you do feel safe in that isn't there anymore or is in the process of deteriorating. So when we're talking about anticipatory so nostalgia, you are in an environment where everything is cool, you find, you know, a sense of place, you find a sense of identity, but you're anticipating 
that that will be taken away from you. And I guess you can compare it to you are still at home mm-hmm. and then you know that a big move is coming up, like you're going to move to a different country. And for this time, you are already sad, even though you haven't left yet, because you're anticipating how sad you will be once you actually leave your home. So that's basically what people are feeling with anticipatory celestalgia. And yes, this does actually affect children more than usual. And this applies to me, I suppose, and Greta Thunberg. Not that I'm comparing myself to <laughs> <laughs> But yes, this, this really does affect children more than usual. Um, so Carolyn Hickman researched about how children perceive climate change using free word association. And this is an interesting methodology as well. Sorry, I I keep talking about the methodologies because it's always so fascinating to me what exactly is being measured. It's kind of like a nerdy side of me, you know? (laughs) But like the purpose of free word association when it comes to psych studies, and I did ask Miko about this as a former psych major, um, they told me that it's used to measure cultural attitudes because... The way that we process language is not like you see a word and that's automatically, you know, what it means. Like you see T-R-E-E and you see it, you don't automatically go like, oh, that looks like the thing in my backyard, right? You only know that it's a tree because you made the connection with some other thing. So if you open like a dictionary and you're going to look for a word, you're not going to see like a picture that you're not going to see a picture. You're going to see other words that define that first word. So that's basically how we develop as even a culture. You you create a lot of these connections. And that's how free word association is used to look at qualitatively cultural attitudes towards a certain thing. But it also kind of looks at how you deal with trauma. Because if you say a certain word and the response was completely irrelevant, what I was told is that it might be considered an avoidant trauma response where an association is suppressed by the subconscious or something like that. Um, and it also shows like your feelings towards a certain thing. So Carolyn Hickman, again, did word association research with children where the researchers introduced climate change or global warming to the, to the children. And the response was, quite interesting because some respond by saying oh it's a virus because they understand climate change as something that spreads that is dangerous that is something that you get when you're not careful something like that but what was really telling for me and it was highlighted in their paper actually it was like one of the prologues to the paper you know when you you write the paper and there's like a quote before it Mm. that's the that was the quote parang how do you feel about climate change and then the response of the child was just ah (laughs) <laughs> which at face value already like shows anxiety over the situation. But more importantly, the fact that it's very hard to describe feelings about the environment and about climate change, especially for children. And they had follow-up interviews with this kid. And those follow-up interviews showed that a source of the anxiety was the fact that, at least from the perspective of children, grown-ups didn't care about global warming. Or, you know, at the very least, People don't think that grown-ups, quote-unquote, grown-ups care about global warming. So, solastalgia as a word is is just made up. We can all agree it's made up by some philosopher 
much like a lot of different words. And I know a lot of debaters are sensitive about makeup words, especially since we have a tendency to just use words from different like fields, like Delta, and then we jargon up our speeches and things like that. But the reason why solostalgia was coined was that the fact that never before in our history have we experienced such rapid global changes in climate. So the mental distress that comes with it has never had a word to go with it. And a lot of people were starting to feel that, you know, there needs to be something to describe the way we're feeling, especially if so many people are feeling it at the same time. Yeah. So we have established that people do get depressed because of climate change. And this is a real thing that people actually feel in response to things that happen to them. Not because of some sort of hysteria, but depression manifests itself in many ways. So the reason why I brought up Young Hysteria Poet was in the unoriginal draft of this episode, in the script, there was a long tangent about how this one person commented on our YouTube page. Because you do have a YouTube page. I think plug. They commented like, I have three points that completely negate the possibility of climate change and global warming. Yeah, they're trying to debate us in the comments, no? Yeah, with like really sciencey terms and like just a couple of Google searches can disprove their points as well. And actually just like logic, because a lot of a lot of it didn't really negate anything actually. But they said because of these three points, you are just hysterically speculating about the environment. I'm just like we are not hysterically speculating the things that are actually happening to us, dude. And I assume, like, because <laughs> they, like, they had a name that was not, I, I was, stereotypically, um, stereotypically European or white. Like I don't a, know. Like, did they give off a Chad vibe? Is that what you're going for? It was Chad, like, uh, actually. No, they were like trying to be Ben Shapiro, probably. Yeah, watts per watts per mass squared. <laughs> watts per meter squared. LWIR black body radiation is impossible because of non-radiative heat transfers in the atmosphere. I can't believe you have it memorized somewhere in your subconscious. But anyway, I guess since we're talking about how people react to climate change, like that's one reaction, right? You can be a Ben Shapiro and negate it. But I, I guess for a lot of more reasonable individuals, there are so many different climate change reactions that you can have. And they intersect with one another. And I guess what I want to try to do in this segment is sort of introduce the likely reactions an individual may have. And you may fall under a category as an individual, but if you don't, that's fine as well. So an important thing to note here is I'm not an expert on depression or on anxiety, my main credential here is just the fact that I have depression myself, <laughs> and I know that doesn't cut it, but I speak mostly from experience as well as from different articles, posts, and researches I've been exposing myself to before this episode, and if any of this applies to you, great. You know, read up more on those things, expose yourself to different fields, understand yourself better, but if nothing resonates, then perhaps there are just some individual experiences that have not yet been accounted for, and well, that's understandable. Yeah, uh, for starters, there seems to be a common root for all reactions to climate change. And if you believe in it, then part of you probably suffers from what is called eco-anxiety. 
the American Psychology Association or the APA describes eco-anxiety as the fear, and it's not just any regular fear, it's a chronic fear of an environmental cataclysm or like an apocalypse type scenario that comes from observing the seemingly irrevocable and irreversible impact of climate change and the associated concern for your own future and the future of of next generations. And the APA considers that when, when you internalize all of these environmental problems that affect our planet, it does have psychological consequences of varying seriousness in some people. It manifests in different ways um, and also, again, leads to different actions, different reactions. Much like other personal issues, the symptoms also vary from person to person. Some people get distressed. Other people have sleep disturbances. Other people become shaky at random. Like, li- they literally... Yeah, they that, that's my manifestation of anxiety. Like, I cannot hold still. Do you know the TikTok trend where you can see, you test how still your hand can be? Like, oh, mine just looks like a big shaky wave because I it's cannot do wave. I cannot do that. So anyway, we now know the root of most of our environmental distress and that's eco-anxiety. So let's talk about reactions. The first one I would like to highlight is the outcome of coping. So one way of coping is obviously denial. Kyle already talked about this in the previous episode that I was not part of because I had a sore throat that day. So if you want a rundown of that, you can listen to that episode. But what I want to discuss is the other strange ways we cope as a society, mainly humor and doom scrolling. And doom scrolling is also a new made up word because that's also a phenomenon that is very iconic to our generation into the 20th century. 21st century. What? 20th century. Social media. But yeah, so 21st century is really known for doom scrolling. So our generation seems to be good at this. We deal with depression through the use of doom scrolling as well as humor and memes. It's an interesting phenomenon, really, because we laugh at things we know to be serious. And making fun of it does not decrease how serious the situation is, for most people at least. But it distracts us long enough for us not to fall into a constant pit of despair. Some would argue humor brings awareness to serious issues. Others argue it downplays the situation, which makes things worse. And I've seen this debate happen a lot. There was even a tournament where we set a motion as Agecore about whether memes on depression do more harm than good. I'd say the discussion can go either way, right? That's why it was set as a motion. It's complex. It's tricky, especially since feelings vary depending on your circumstance and you can't really generalize how a particular person will cope or choose not to cope. Yeah, so Nina is the doom scrolly type and mm. I'm the humor type. Yeah. <laughs> so like the other day, it, it was 9-11 the other day, and we were both sad about it in different ways. Like, we were commemorating 9-11, not in like the happy way, but we were both sad, but we were manifesting it in different ways. Like Nina, for the entire day, was watching documentaries about 9-11, and I remember like there was a point where I couldn't talk to you. Because you're just like I'm. I'm too sad. I'm reading this article about oh the flyers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, my coping mechanism that day was like I woke up 
before everyone else. I woke up before everyone else. And then Are you sure I, you woke up before everyone else or you were still awake by the time? Oh, I was I was awake by the time people were waking people up. People were waking up. So I was like <laughs> I, I I went to my brother's room and I was he was all he was still asleep. But I wanted to wake him up, so I wanted to wake him up with a joke and I said, Hey, you know who turns twenty today? Because he just turned twenty. Yeah. And he was like, What? And I was like nine eleven. I was like, God damn it! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So th- that's basically different ways of coping, and it's not necessarily healthy because it's either you like fall further into a pit, or at least in the, in the sense of humor, it's not as bad as denying it or denying its existence. But it's more of like you're downplaying its seriousness mm. because if you accept or realize how serious it is, it will take a bigger toll on you. So it's not necessarily healthy. But if you haven't seen the Netflix special, and I'm talking to the audience now, if you haven't seen the Netflix special... Oh, you were talking to me? <laughs> no, I was talking to you earlier. Oh, okay. Now I'm talking to the audience. If you haven't seen the Netflix special of Bo Burnham called Inside, I think that you should. Nina and I have watched it like three times already. There are a lot of interesting takeaways there regarding our generation's relationship with anxiety and humor. And more specifically, there's a constant background narrative about climate change and how the world is doomed because of it, amongst other things. Um, And one of the last songs um, in the special, it was called All Eyes on Me. There was a line that goes, uh, You say the ocean's rising like I give a shit. You say the whole world's ending, honey. It already did. I can't sing. (laughs) Um, you're not gonna slow it. Uh, heaven knows you tried. I think that's not done. Got it. Good. Now go inside. Get inside. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of internet hot takes say that it's reflective of our generation's general feeling towards climate change. Like we know it. We probably personally have tried to do something about it. We feel hopeless because that effort wasn't enough. We tried to forget it. And then the cycle continues. Yeah, so that's just one song. There's also another song called That Funny Feeling. One of the verses goes... You have to sing. I, I don't know how this line goes. I forgot. So And I won't, I don't want to sing. So it goes, The whole world is at your fingertip. The ocean at your door. The live action Lion King. The Pepsi halftime show. 20,000 years of this. Seven more to go. Um, the last slide <laughs> is what matters here. In seven years is 2028. And that wasn't by accident, right? This was actually a reference to a predicted time that the world will end according to the climate clock. If you're not aware what the climate clock is, I I recommend you read up more on it. Of course, it's just speculation, but it's speculation backed by data. So uh, I would say that it is kind of threatening, but you should also check it out. So the song is deliberately showing how we seem to be just coping with everything until the end, right? The Lion King live action, the Pepsi halftime show. They're just kind of distractions until seven years are up and then we all, poof, vanish. So it's just saying that everything we do before 2028 is useless distractions. Yeah, so while it's quite easy sometimes to belittle depression um, because it, you know, some people manage to spin it into something productive at times. That doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. Most hope and action that's built on depression is short-lived. Um, this is a common experience for a lot of depressed and bipolar individuals, like you've told me, Nina, who think that they can just snap themselves out of it due to su- sudden action 
or by establishing new routines, meaning making, finding new hobbies to hyperfixate on. Um, but I think that that's not quite sustainable because, I mean, I said that it's hope built on depression, but if it's hope built on depression, then it's not like a sustainable form of hope. Yeah, so there's actually a term for this. If you somehow grow into a better person because of your depression or something, like this is a rare instance, but it does happen for some people, which is why it's kind of controversial. Remember there was a motion that people were posting about on Facebook about getting rid of depression, right? Yeah, the one that people hated. Yeah, people hated it because obviously depression is something you'd want to collectively get rid of. There's nothing inspirational about it. But apparently one of the arguments in defense of having depression is that it, you know, it's meaning-making. It's character-building. Uh, I don't agree it's with it. It's part of who you are. Yeah, but basically, there is a term for instances wherein you grow from that, and it's called po- post-traumatic growth. And it's common for people who gain revelation and establish communities through their depression or end up getting more friends because they manage to get through the angst. Yeah, so I guess, you know, while that does happen, action isn't just because of hope. You know, it can also be because of paranoia, anger, as well as guilt and self-loathing. So the individual responsibility and guilt people feel over the environment is another controversial topic. So you might have grown into a better person, but maybe the reason why that happened isn't a good reason, right? You might be angry, you might be guilty, you might just really feel bad about yourself, and that's what pushed you. So on one hand, people would argue that this guilt is good, Vegans use it for their propaganda on the daily, right? Saying not all vegans, just the you know the vegan teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but a lot of vegans do use this. At least the loud my like loud minority. I I want to believe they're a minority. The same way a lot of us woke individuals use guilt to try to change people's minds on Twitter and Instagram or whatever the younglings are using these days, like TikTok or whatever, right? So they try to use the lies fear and guilt to their advantage. So while that might be seen as a good thing, like it spurts action, etc., it can also be a way to make people scapegoats for things that they really have no control over, right? So should you feel bad as an individual when corporations are largely at fault for the damages that are happening for the environment? Why should I adjust... For example, when corporations are the ones doing the oil spills, producing the plastic bags, like what will me using a straw, like a a metal straw straw. or a bamboo straw going to do, right? So again, it's another debatable issue. This has come up in many nationals in the past. Not sure if I was competing in that nationals or if I was agecore of that nationals, but it, it did come up, right? And it's a debatable topic. I don't think it's resolved even until now. But bottom line is... Pragmatically speaking, guilt, paranoia, and anger does make sense and it works. Much like hope, though, as Kyle mentioned, it's short-lived. Yeah, the last possible in- income, the last possible outcome uh, is inaction. And that's what you wanted to talk about initially, which is climate apathy. Because a lot of the research um, that I read came from a book called Climate Psychology on Indifference to Disaster, Mm. which is a book from 2019. But it was just about apathy, basically, um, or indifference. But I don't think that's appropriate to say that it's just indifference or apathy. I think it's better to say that it's inaction. Because 
in the instance that the message comes across and people see urgency, um, sometimes they might also feel too small to fight against it. This is what a lot of people feel like they don't have agency over what happens to them. And as a result, they end up being too sad to do anything about it and they don't do anything about it. People might be stuck at this coping part and worse, they might fall into utter despair over the situation of our world. And this manifests in either being pessimistic about the future or pessimistic about the present or both. It might also manifest itself in just trying not to think about it at all. Uh, a lot of people in our generation, for example, no longer see the point in trying to accumulate wealth for the future or starting a family of their own. Uh, capitalism also doesn't help this feeling of pessimism. Yeah. So it, it just kind of adds up. I guess that's the main point of that. And sometimes, I guess the worst part is that despair gets projected onto others. And projection is a psychological defense mechanism in which individuals attribute characteristics they find unacceptable in themselves to another person. Um, this is Freudian, so take it with a grain of salt, but a lot of people are citing that this is what's happening to a lot of individuals. We seem to project our problems onto others. And there are many types of projection in psychology, right? The one that most applies here is called complementary projection. And complementary projection occurs when individuals assume Others feel the same way they do. For example, a person with a per particular political persuasion or per political view might take it for granted that their friends and family members share those beliefs. So I guess this is more of the like psychological explanation for echo chambers. If you've heard that buzz term and if you've heard that jargon in debate before, this is like a deeper explanation for why that happens. And that's complementary projection. Because echo chambers ba? or echo chambers? Echo? Echo? Echo, diba? Echo, sorry. Echo <laughs> yeah. chambers. I was like, are, is this a new word? Like echo chambers? Where... Like it's an environment it's, it's an, chamber. It's an environment chamber. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I guess we've just been saying echo stuff a lot. So like, yeah. Um, yeah, so echo chambers. And because you no longer see a future for yourself in the instance of talking about climate change, you stop seeing the future in, in others. And you don't think about it as well, right? You lose empathy for others in similar situations. You lose faith in government. You lose faith in the capabilities of humanity as a whole. So your pessimism becomes everyone else's pessimism in your eyes. And that just leads to further domino effects of inaction. It's, it's sort of like, what do you call that problem where you think someone is not going to act, therefore you're not acting? It's a, it's a collective action problem. Yeah. So it's it, a collective action. Problem. So it leads to a sort of collective action problem, right? And the psychological explanation for that brings us back to this, right? You're projecting your pessimism onto others. Yeah. And I remember we talked with Papat about this in, in a previous episode about cynicism, like it's widespread cynicism. Um, and I think now that it isn't just a function of the media or anything like making people more pessimistic or more cynical. It's the fact that there are lots of people who are already acting cynically. So they think that other people are going to act cynically in return. Mm. So it creates this sort of loop. But in, if environmentalists don't like that people aren't doing anything, don't go ahead and say that they're lazy. Don't just say that they don't care. Because it is possible they're experiencing eco-anxiety. It's possible that they're experiencing solastalgia. It's just manifesting itself as as hopelessness or inaction. But also, 
think about what this means for debates because I mean like this is not the main priority but there are debates about you know exaggerating the effects of climate change and whether or not that would lead to more action or or less typically the debate has affirmative or gov side saying we should exaggerate the effects because that's the only way to get people moving meanwhile opposition or the negative side usually says we have a duty as the media or we have a duty as a scientific community to be truthful but now we have another dimension to think about which is how does this affect mental health because at some point too much doom and gloom can actually be counterproductive towards the creation of an action if people think that it's inevitable what is your incentive to try to change that yeah so it's sort of like finding a nice balance right because not enough push on urgency leads to people not acting but if you do it too much people will also not act so like both extremes lead to the same bad outcome so you want to find that sweet middle spot where basically you are making people fearful enough but hopeful still yeah so i think it's the way that it's framed though yeah it's how you frame it and that's like an issue our generation and even politicians and experts have been dealing with for a long while so i guess one thing to note here is that we've seen a lot of media try to talk about this situation and talk about sort of the the tendencies and mindsets that people have so tomorrowland which kyle made me watch recently and this next part has spoilers by the way it has an environmentalist as the main antagonist right so it's kind of weird that they're the antagonist but basically they're the antagonist right he's been subconsciously manipulating the people on earth to feel the incoming do more and more but he says that people just ate it all up like they welcome the apocalyptic narratives in media People are essentially lazy. And while this is a work of fiction, we can actually see that happen in real life. Like, there was an era of young adult novels where we just kind of talked about children dying a lot. No, like, like the Hunger Games. Yeah, the apocalypse already happened. We were just like, yeah, yeah, let's not talk about how it happened. Basically, we're in the districts now and we're not in a good place. But let's not talk about how we got here. Or if there were any efforts to fight that from happening, let's just assume that it has already happened. Yeah, what other movies? So you had The Hunger Games, which is like the Maze main... Runner, then. Maze Runner, yeah. I think Divergent has something like that. Ah, hindi, Divergent. It was an experiment. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I don't I, like but, that trilogy like But that. basically, it's mostly dystopian, right? And we ate it all up. And that's basically what this Disney movie is trying to tell us as well. So what made this person an antagonist wasn't the fact that he was an environmentalist, you know, but rather they were a pessimistic environmentalist and they are very pessimistic about the future. And the metaphor in that movie was that you have two wolves inside you. One that thrives on hope and optimism and action, and the other one that thrives on pessimism, despair. And the wolf that wins out is the wolf you feed. And that's basically like telling us as a generation, stop doom scrolling. Stop being pessimistic. And, you know, I, I know you like this movie a lot. Like, I'm not gonna diss this movie. I know you have a lot of problems with it. No, <laughs> no. My my main problem isn't the movie itself. It's the fact that Disney is telling me all these things. Like this huge monopoly of a corporation that has probably done its fair share of bad things, you know, just slaps on this narrative on Tomorrowland and says, we have been absolved of our problems. Yeah, we are but- trying to save the future. 
I appreciate it nevertheless because of the message. So like there are many layers to any piece of art. Like there's the text itself. There oh, yeah, is the, the audience is fine. reaction. That's fine. There is the circumstances of production. There are three levels of, of cultural studies when it comes to pop culture. But I think that I mean, parang hindi naman sa misleading na when you said that the environmentalist was the main antagonist. Um, but we also have to say that the protagonists were also environmentalists. But where they disagree is how do we portray and, and like what attitude should we have towards being an environmentalist? Well, except one of the protagonists. He was like both at the same time. Like a pessimist at first and an optimist. See, see George Clooney. Yeah, George Clooney was like, I guess George Clooney is meant to represent the older generation, right? Like, because yeah. they have been growing up with pessimism and the younger generations are full of hope. So the younger generation wants to influence us. Oh my God, we're part of the older generation now. But yes, yeah. like <laughs> our generation, like the people in their 20s and 30s to enact change. Yeah, so... I think you can you you can draw like a table here, and and then you go like, are you acting or not acting, and are you doing that out of hope or out of despair? Mm. So I think the real battle is against the combination of passiv passivity and hopelessness, because you can be hopeful about the future but passive. Those people who say that things will all be okay, we don't need to do anything, either climate change isn't real. Or maybe climate change is real, but we can fix it without doing much because Jeff Bezos will transfer all pollution into space, or Elon Musk will save us, um, or we move to Mars, or we move to Mars. <laughs> you know, so you can be hopeful about the future but passive. Um, you can be pessimistic but active, um, but that's not sustainable because you have to eventually face the problem of burnout or fatigue. You can be pessimistic and inactive, where nothing happens at all, which is what we just talked about. And you're sad that nothing's happening and you end up doing nothing. And because nothing's happening, it's a negative feedback loop. We have to hope. We have to act. Like that, I feel for me, like this is where like I am the most flowery in, in my personal philosophies because I really do think that the only way to get out of this is if we have hope that we can get out of this and at the same time act on that hope as well. Yeah, so Albrecht which we mentioned earlier in the episode, they published something in 2020. So it wasn't just their old paper. They have something new as well. And that's about negating nostalgia. So their old work was about introducing this concept. But now after a while, it's like, you know, we got to deal with it. So they made this paper. And it says that our emotions focusing on protecting the earth coupled with scientific realism is where we can find the foundation for hope. The causes we are committed to are not arbitrary or utopian, but rather, we should see them as the strongest reasons to do something positive. He also uses the wolf metaphor, but instead of framing it as between optimism and pessimism, it's between creation and destruction. There's a perceived trade-off between destroying the earth for our benefit and protecting the earth at the expense of some conveniences. And I guess this has been a conversation happening for a long while. That's why a lot of people, for example, are not willing to change cars into less gas-guzzling um, vehicles because it's less convenient for them, right? And humans are now in a state of constant confusion where they can clearly see that their own role 
is there, right? In achieving, for example, the collapse of the environment, that they play a role, even if they don't want that collapse to happen. But at the same time, it's really hard to imagine an alternative to the current system because we're, we're so used to a lifestyle. We're so used to how things are that like trying to think of alternatives is, is really difficult because of the fact that you might not understand how it plays a role in your own life. But if you do, you don't like it, right? So what happens is you're, it seems to be cognitive dissonance and you're always going to be in this state of confusion. And I feel, I mean, like this is my personal opinion here, like a lot of environmental distress we feel and confusion is because of capitalism. We have go- grown so accustomed to uh, like fast shipping, for example, or vehicles that destroy the environment, but they get us from point A to point B that we're not willing to sacrifice those things. Yeah, uh, ako naman, I have a more moderate view, <laughs> more moderate, but like, I'm a bit more empathetic towards people who don't, like, they, they see that it's bad for the environment, but the alternative would be much worse for themselves personally. So an example here, I, I think, is... I mean, just to clarify, I never said I wasn't empathetic towards them. Uh, but anyway, just saying I, I'm confused. Um, I don't like the example because the example was that um, the only convenience that you're giving up is fast shipping. But for other people, especially poorer folk, um, it's not, it's a convenience, but it's a really, really big convenience, like that they might not be able to live without it. So, like sachets, right? Like yeah, sachets, ma- sachets but also, um, an example I was thinking of was a jeepney modernization program where you have a lot of gas guzzling or smoke belching jeepneys. Yeah. And the government was saying something like, okay, all the jeepneys must be phased out. We have to transition into electric jeepneys so that's better for the environment, which is good for the environment. But there are a lot of real trade-offs that these jeepney drivers will have to face, um, which is it's more expensive. We do not have um, infrastructure to support um, and uh, electric cars, those kinds of things. And it's, very difficult because the government isn't subsidizing. So th- there are lots of levels here. When people say that they're not in favor of jeepney modernization, they're not saying let's, because we don't care about the environment. What they're actually saying is that this is a half-assed way of going about it because you're not looking at the real consequences to people. And as a result, it's, it, it's a compounding of consequences because of climate change. Because these poor people, sila na nga yung, they're the ones who are going to be facing the worst of climate change. And now they're also going to bear a lot of the burden in trying to fix climate change by modernizing as well. So we agree. It's all because of capitalism. Like, if, if things were much more fair, right, and individuals were not in poverty because of accumulation of wealth, then probably the modernization wouldn't be that big of a problem for people if we manage to support them in their transition. Yeah, it's, it's also, I agree, capitalism bad, but also government inaction yeah, or a lack bad. of government understanding, I think is also bad. I think what people need now, because it's cognitive dissonance, it's emotional confusion, what people need now, I think, is emotional clarity. And emotional clarity is a goal of a lot of climate psychologists today, 
Renee Lertzman said that when we do research on how people respond to the climate crisis, researchers should come from a place of empathy instead of from a place of judgment. There's a common idea that if you see someone acting in a certain way, it's because of their ideology. It's a reflection of what they believe, but arguably your feelings aren't necessarily consistent with your ideology. For example, I know that fat phobia is irrational, but I can't stop myself from not liking my body. I feel it anyway, even though I know that it doesn't match my ideology. And for many people, they don't know if it's irrational or not. Some philosophers argue that the feelings and emotions of people inform worldviews, not logic. And you can debate the trolley problem for years and not find a correct answer with logic. So the question now is, how do people choose whether or not they're going to utilitarian or deontological? How do people choose whether they're going to pull the lever or not? It's not, you know, logic because you can't logic your way out of choosing utilitarianism over deontology. It's feelings. It's personal preferences. So the point is that beliefs about climate change are not necessarily indicative of an underlying political ideology. Like your inaction when it comes to climate change does not necessarily reflect um, an ideology that you don't give a shit about the environment. Um, on the other hand, a political ideology isn't necessarily the root of those beliefs because the opposite may be true as well, which is why it's important to treat people with empathy. Yeah, so when we treat people with empathy, I feel like we get to achieve more things. But we tend to look past those things because we share the same circles and assume that feelings people have are consistent across the board. So if you remember our conversation earlier about projection, this is also another type of projection. I forgot the name, but basically it's the assumption that other people can do the same things as well as oneself, right? So if you believe in science, that's because I believe in science. Or if I believe in science, you should be able to. And if I can be logical, you should be logical as well and i feel like a lot of problems come about by this kind of projection like we fail to recognize that people are different we fail to recognize that they don't think the same way we do they don't have the same for example educational attainment they don't have the same experiences they don't feel the same kinds of problems that we do right so i feel that we need to sort of step outside of our comfort zone in how we address people. And that's the only way we can actually see change happen. Yeah, Lurchman actually said that instead of looking for ideological consistency, we should instead look at places where there isn't consistency. We should look at places where there are contradictions that can be conveyed through narratives. Uh, so Lurchman actually did some work with Republicans and interviewed them to find some of these contradictions because... Um, th- you know, a lot of them, a lot of Republicans, they don't actually go like, let's let's destroy the environment, right? A lot of them are saying that they they're actually fearful of something else. Uh, so one of the Republicans that they interviewed said that they'd rather have smog than have it be removed by the Environmental Protection Agency because they believe in small government. But on the other hand, they also don't think that a corporation should just be able to make something that causes lung cancer or pollute with no consequence. That's clearly a contradiction, right? Because on one hand, you wish that corporations don't smog up the, the air, but at the same time, you're not willing to desmog the air with with um, environmental action. That's a contradiction. And if it were a debate, you would say, ha, huh, that doesn't make sense. That's a contradiction. But real life is not about winning. You can't win your way into resolving a fundamentally psychosocial tension 
in another person. So for Lurksmut, the answer to the question of how people vote against their self-interest regarding climate issues is to look at three A's, anxieties, ambivalence, which is where they're conflicted, and aspirations. Which is the view of what they want the future to be. So I guess despite what many of us in the the deber- de- de- <laughs> the debate world would say, I don't think Republicans believe that we should not care about future generations or the environment because they want to help future generations, but they're anxious about what government intervention will mean for their own lives and the enjoyment of their particular liberties. So these kinds of people, right, you can't keep using the but future generations argument over and over again because it won't work because you're not really addressing the root of their anxiety, the contradiction, the aspiration, like what Kyle mentioned. They will end up saying what everyone is saying in that Republican Party, for example, which is that you should be responsible on your own, which is something I know many of us don't believe is feasible, especially if we want to make a large-scale change for the better, but that's ultimately what these people are trying to see or trying to say themselves, right? So you can only understand where the root of the miscommunication is is if you're stop you're stopping yourself from trying to win an argument and instead trying to reach a sort of consensus. Yeah, and Lertzman was able to make conservative Republicans want to take action in response to climate change, not by logicking them to death, but by, again, using those three A's, by looking at anxiety, anxieties, ambivalence, points of ideological conflict, and their aspirations. And this was their process. They began with a conservative narrative. like So they, they went on a camping trip. They went on a hiking trip to a mountain, which was really nice. Um, it had nice nature, stuff like that. Um, and they did like a campfire <laughs> speech type thing, like a team building thing. They began with a conservative narrative about, you know, what it means to be American, having freedom, being able to enjoy wide open spaces, nature, family. And then they introduced the issue not by using buzzwords that make them defensive, like climate change or global warming or the climate crisis, but rather using something like, oh, we are facing a lot of changes to our climate. And then immediately, they talked about various anxieties that may come up, whether that was resentment or anger or fear. They say things like, you may feel angry or resentful, and then talked about the fear of having solutions handled by people they don't know and people who don't actually care about their best interests. But they got conversations um, going and they got conversions, actually, when they said that they can learn to address it on their own terms. You know, about hard work, ingenuity, coming together to solve a massive problem, patriotism, sacrificing something for the greater good. And what ended up happening, what they said was, they ended up with a script, an actual script that was read by actors, um, and they tested it with dial testing methodology about climate change that... And they said this, they, it truly resonated with a surprising number of conservatives who were skeptical about climate change issues. Yeah, so that's why debating is a thing, uh-huh. isn't it? You need to step into another person's shoes. You need to know what they're anxious about. Where do they have tensions in their life? How can you reframe their aspirations towards a particular goal? Um, but that as an aside, I don't really like the trend where debaters see emotion that you're acting like a Republican and immediately they go, our interest as a Republican is to get rich and burn for us. Because even if that's debatable and even if that's easy, it's not really productive outside of the debate room, I think. But even if that kind of is a strategy you like using, 
I guess I want our listeners to understand why it is we do what we do as debaters, or at the very least, treat real-life conversations with people you disagree with not as a competition to be won, but as a dialogue that involves irrational but valid fears about the lives of the people you are talking to or talking about. So yes, while we do teach you how to win debates in tournaments, especially since that's the goal of this podcast overall, do not assume that those strategies apply in real-life conversations. So different rules need to be followed. Personally, I think a lot of different groups, including those that I'm part of, they don't seem to realize that yet. That there's a difference between like the Discord debate tournament and the real-life conversation that will, for example, get people to vote a different candidate in the next election. So we need to stop trying to win but instead try to reach a particular consensus or try to understand different people more. Yeah, and Rosie Robinson said that emotional work is a necessity, especially for collaborative projects like solving climate change or in the case of her paper, making low-carbon energy work. And emotional work is often overlooked in climate research and undervalued in health work. Emotional work includes recognizing other people's fears, acknowledging the efforts of others, noting how stress can limit empathetic responses. So again, the manifestations of Celestalgia we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, all of those things you need to recognize. Yeah, so uh, I guess it might feel strange right now because on one hand, we're saying that you should trust the science, but we also want to lean into the emotions and feelings of people. So generally, as I mentioned earlier, a balance needs to be struck. We can't be Ben Shapiro saying facts don't care about your feelings because sometimes the feelings are the facts that need to be dealt with. But we can't also just rely on our guts to lead the way out of the mess, so we need to compromise. If anything, feelings are indicative of things we need to note as facts. So anxieties are facts. Depression is a fact. Hope is also a fact. So we need to find a way to balance all of those different things. So thank you so much for listening to a very long couple of episodes about climate change and, you know, how to deal or cope with it or how we should, you know, frame our attitude towards it. Thank you so much again for listening. Um, that's it for this episode. We have two more episodes this week. Um, we're very looking forward to making those. The next episode will be about debate scale and then we're going to have a very long matter loading session on Friday. So that's it for this episode. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye. <laughs>